Okay, we are finally back. Let's do a countdown. Get some people joining the stream now. Hey, welcome in, everybody. We are back, the Deep Dive Bible Study. It's 7.30, it's Wednesday night, and we are here together for part 12 of Torah. And I'm excited that you're here, and if you would do me the very kind favor of hitting the like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell, that way you get notified every time we go live with new content. It's been far too long, but I am so glad to be with you guys here today. We are going to talk for one more episode on the topic of slavery. I know. We might want to move on, but there are important spiritual truths from the Torah regarding slavery that lead to us understanding who we are in Christ. And this content you can't afford to miss, so I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents Torah, the Law of Life. All right, first off, what do you guys think of the new studio? Do you like it? This is the new Deep Dive studio. I'm excited to be here. We got a lion in the background giving me some boldness. We got this on-air box over here letting you know we are on the air. And I am your host, Tim Hatch, here on YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Let's go with the content today. Right to it, the Bible Slavery, part three. And some of you say, I don't like the Bible when it comes to slavery. This is why I have a hard time with the Bible. And I know that there are people out there. I don't know what's going on, but suddenly my small little channel got a ton of comments from trolls. Hello, trolls. Uh, yeah, if you haven't noticed, I've paused the comments from the previous two episodes because I I saw that you really weren't interested in the discussion. You just wanted to attack and vilify. And this channel is dedicated to helping God's people understand the Word of God. But if you're out there and you have serious questions about the Bible and slavery, you've come to the right place. And, 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 and I want to do one more episode. I said we'd do about three. And here we are, number three. This is the last one. And some people really have a hard time understanding this. And the people who under, have a hard time understanding slavery in the Bible, very simple. I know who you are. You're unbelievers. You're unbelievable. You don't have regard for the word of God. You don't have regard for the God of heavens and earth. And, and you're not following Christ. And I totally understand that. But for believers, we need to remember that when it comes to God speaking about things in the Bible, especially in the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Torah, he's usually using those pictures to speak to larger realities concerning the human condition. So, now, now, that includes slavery, as much as we don't want to talk about it. It does include slavery. And we have gone over this in, on the channel that chattel slavery of the New World and America is not even allowed in the Bible. There's plenty of passages that point this out, not just Old, but New Testament. Exodus 21 um, prohibits the sale of another human being uh, and, and the capture of another human being for sale. First uh, Timothy chapter one, Paul says that the law is written down for slave traders, and he puts them right there with the immoral pagans of his day. So, slave trading, capturing people, kidnapping them, and, and enslaving them for life, outlawed in the Bible. Even the the, the the Ten Commandments outlaw slavery. If we followed the Ten Commandments, there would have been no New World slavery because stealing is outlawed in the Ten Commandments. 
Now, in this episode, I want to talk to you about the picture of our relationship to God in view of God's stipulations about slavery in Torah. And that sounds like a crazy ask. That sounds like a crazy idea. But believe me when I say this, it happens regularly. The Bible speaks in ways that are shadows and types of ultimate realities. In fact, even the gospel itself, understanding Jesus Christ, do you, do you realize that he is preached from the Old Testament very effectively through types and shadows of the characters of the Old Testament? David is a type of Christ because he defeats Goliath. And then if you remember the story, he defeats Goliath and cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. Jesus beats our Goliath, death, with death on the cross. Abraham is a type of Christ who, who uh, takes possession of the land by faith through death. The only thing that Abraham had at the end of his life was a grave for his wife and for himself. Jesus takes possession of us through the grave that he, he left empty. Uh, Moses is a type of Christ who leads his people out of slavery into the promised land. Joshua is a type of Christ. In fact, his name Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent to Jeshua, Jesus in the Greek. So when it comes to slavery, we have to understand that Old Testament terminology about slavery is pointing to New Testament realities about spiritual the spiritual condition. And one more thing, just to back me up on the fact that New World slavery has no bearing, no correlation to old, ancient world slavery. You have to understand that indentured servitude or selling oneself into slavery was a form of economics, keeping yourself out of poverty, making sure that you could provide for your family or yourself. And in a world without the want ads and with, without job listings and without indeed.com, right? You, you didn't have many options. You had to sell yourself out to someone who would hire you. And the Bible makes clear that there are plenty of opportunities for those people to be set free, not just every sixth, seventh year, but the year of Jubilee and so on and so forth. And then I ran across this um, quote from Dennis Prager's The Rational Bible. Great quote. He talks about slavery in historical context. He says, though in a different moral category, had the Torah banned indentured servitude, it would have increased, not decreased poverty. For many Europeans, as recently as the 18th century, indentured servitude was the primary way to escape poverty. Around half of European immigrants to the 13 colonies in America before the establishment of the United States in 1776 came as indentured servants. According to Berkeley historian Christopher Tomlins, of the approximate 450,000 Europeans who came to the American colonies voluntarily, virtually half came as indentured servants. What's he saying? He's saying basically that what we understand as slavery in the Bible was a fact of life right up until the founding of America. Now, I got to make one more uh, stipulation here. You cannot, no matter what the argument, you cannot make a correlation between ancient world indentured servitude or slavery contracts and new world chattel slavery wherein People from this country traveled overseas, stole people from another country, and brought them here as slaves for lifetime permanent servitude and treated them as barbarians. And remember from our first episode, the countless abolitionists who were Bible-believing preachers who worked tirelessly not just to help slaves in this country escape slavery, but to ultimately end slavery altogether. Okay, that being said, let's turn the page to today's content. Here's what you need to understand about slavery in the spiritual sense. We are all slaves. I know this is hard to believe, <laughs> but we are all slaves. And the Bible says this very clearly. Let's talk about slavery and freedom. 
Total freedom is an illusion. It's an illusion of modern Americans because we think that be, because we have iPhones, where's mine? I don't, here's mine. We have iPhones and we have all kinds of technology and we have choices and we can watch any show from any time frame at any moment and we can choose whatever bagel we want from whatever store we want and we can shop at whatever shop we want and pay whatever price we want. Well, sometimes not really. But, you know, we have so much choice. We are, we are in America given this illusion of freedom. And the reality is, personal freedom is an illusion that does not exist. You're not free. You are, whether you believe it or not, the um, sum total of the actions and the interactions of your life with other people up until now, including your parents and your siblings, if you have any, and your neighbors and strangers and people who hurt you and people who helped you, and people who cursed you, and people who blessed you. You are the sum total of those people. You did not produce yourself. You were produced by your context, by the people around you. Got it? Total illusion, a, a total freedom is an illusion from the devil. Remember the devil said to Eve, you shall be like God. Now I will say this. Eve, who was not Eve at that moment, she was just the woman, she was Adam. The word Adam in Hebrew means man. They were given total freedom. Because they had dominion over the world, over the beasts of the earth, the fish of the sea, and every green thing was theirs, right? They were given total freedom. And only two people in all of human history have been given total freedom. Well, three. Let's, let's say who they are. Adam and the wife, or Adam, which the two shall become one, were given total freedom to obey God and work for God in dominion over the world. And the only other person that had total freedom was Jesus Christ. Because when Adam sinned and did not take dominion, but surrendered dominion to the devil, he became a slave. And everybody born of Adam and the woman, Eve, are slaves to sin. You see, as soon as they took the fruit, they brought uh, sin comes into the world. Shame comes into the world. F fear comes into the world. And from that moment forward, every human being born of Adam is a slave to Satan, to the sinful condition, uh, the Bible calls him the God of this world, and that is our spiritual condition. And in that context, we have to understand that even the institution of slavery is the result of a spiritual slavery that Adam subjected us to in the garden. Even uh, every human uh, degradation, prostitution, rape, murder, theft, lies, uh, adultery, all of those things are products of enslavement to sin. Here's what the Bible says is a very important verse, two verses in Hebrews chapter two, regarding what I'm talking about on this, on this uh, episode. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that's Christ, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and listen to this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong, what? Slavery. Do you understand what the text is saying? It's saying that Jesus came to set people free. He is, the, he is their deliverer. Deliverer from what? From fear of death. And every person fears death. In fact, I think it is the greatest fear every, every time they do a survey of every human being. They don't want to die. And uh, even... Uh, who was it? Tim McGraw said, everybody, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now, right? We, we don't want to die. 
And so we have to understand that no one is truly free. Everyone lives under some form of bondage. Now, there are further bondages than just the, the fear of death. Uh, like when Peter says in 2 Peter 2.9, he says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then look what he says here, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Notice that Peter acknowledges the very hard reality. There are a number of controlling um, uh, influences by which you may be dominated. Or as uh, Christian writer Rebecca Pippert says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And this is from her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. It's true. You, you may not like this, but it's a reality that you have to acknowledge at some point. You're going to be a slave to something. Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody. And I love that song because you could be a billionaire. You could be just a, you know, a housewife. It doesn't matter who you are. You are going to serve and, and, and follow something. There are hosts of young people. They're slaves right now to anxiety and depression, to their chemical imbalance, to uh, the opinions of their friends. Right now, there's a, a wife who's a slave to keeping up with the Joneses next door. There's a man who's a slave to making more money than his brother. And that has become an obsession to him. And he would do whatever it takes, even things that hurt others, to serve the master of making more money than his brother. You have to understand this is the spiritual condition that Torah enters into and then talks about slavery from a physical standpoint so that we understand what do we look forward to in Christ regarding our spiritual slavery? Because we need a deliverer. We need somebody to set us free. You need it. I need it. There is no hope inside of ourselves to be free from the fear of death, to be free from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, outside the true David, the true Moses, the true deliverer, Jesus Christ. So here's how Paul unpacks this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, and he's talking here universally of Christians, before Christians were Christians, they were non-believers, and they were, as non-believers, slaves of sin. Every Christian was once a slave of sin. That means that they had to serve sin, follow sin, obey sin, and they couldn't stop obeying sin. But now he says, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which we, to which we were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have now become, what's the word, everybody? Slaves of righteousness. Please see this very clearly with me for a moment. Paul's making it adamantly clear. You're a slave of either sin or you're a slave of righteousness. There is no third option. Free will is an illusion. Spiritual freedom is a lie from the devil. You are spiritually free, yes, to serve God or you are enslaved to serve the flesh, the world, and the devil. You will be bound by one. There's no such thing as the demilitarized zone. Two men had free will, Adam and Christ. One man enslaved us through his disobedience. Christ redeemed us through his act of obedience. And that is the gospel, my friend. 
And that is what we have to understand when it comes to slavery in our context and in our world. Not only are human beings enslaved, but creation itself is enslaved. Did you ever realize that the Bible says this very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 18? It says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager uh, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, who is the him who subjected creation to futility? Adam. He subjected the creation to futility, futility because of disobedience to God. He was supposed to rule and, and have dominion and subdue the earth. And instead, he hands the earth over to the God of chaos, Satan himself. So now we have wars, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, any number of natural disasters because the picture of our world, friend, is a picture of the spiritual condition of enslavement to sin. Sin brings destruction, de degradation, human uh, pain and suffering. That's what it does. And this is why Paul says so clearly in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, enslavement, that's another word for enslavement, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul uses slavery here as a symbol of what's wrong with the earth. The natural problems that happen on earth are a picture of what happens with sin. This cannot be overstated. We are meant to see our fallen world as an enslaved world so that we will see the problem with sin and turn to the one who came to redeem us from sin. Every time you see a natural disaster, you are not being... <laughs> let, me, let me start over. Every time people see a natural disaster, they, their propensity is to blame God. Now, they will ignore God for the 364 days of the year that are perfectly fine. But it's that one day. It's that one day when the hurricane hits. Where's God? How, how can there be a God? Okay, wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First off, where is your evidence that God created this earth perfect and will be remained perfect even if he gave dominion to man? to rule over the earth, and man sinned against God. There is no proof. The Bible makes it very clear that man abdicated his rulership, his authority, and what we are living with is the consequence of that choice. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. You might not agree with it because you're not a believer, and I understand that. But if you're a believer, this is how the Bible is asking us to see the world. This is how the Bible is asking us to see our reality. Okay, let's go on. Um, so we are enslaved as human creatures because of Adam's sin. Creation is enslaved because of Adam's sin, and that will always be a reality until Christ comes and redeems us and the, and the fallen world. But here's the good news. God is a liberator. He is a liberator from the jump, friends. You get to the second book of the Bible, his people are enslaved, and he redeems them out of slavery. A host of passages about this from Exodus and Deuteronomy, Exodus 3, 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up into the land of the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Exodus 8, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Oh, 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 let's just stop there. Look at Exodus 8, 1, by the way. Um, let them go that they may serve me. Again, you're not going to just get free from Pharaoh. You're going to come out of that slavery into servanthood toward God. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 5, 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. God liberates. Jesus' ministry was all about liberation. When he starts preaching in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a quote out of Isaiah chapter 61, which, by the way, that quote from Isaiah chapter 61 is a quote out of Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, you know that passage, that chapter about um, the uh, year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was to be announced with trumpets, and then they were to uh, proclaim, Leviticus 25, proclaim liberty throughout all the land. So let's look at the swath of the biblical text. God liberates out of Egypt. Uh, Jesus, I'm uh, sorry, let me go back. The law liberates the slave every seven years, every 50th year. The prophets rebuke God's people constantly for not setting free the slaves. Jesus shows up and pronounces that he's come to set people free. And ultimately, Jesus sets all people free who believe in him from the fear of death, the lifelong slavery to the fear of death. For this is how we're supposed to see slavery in the Bible. And anybody who teaches you differently, as if the Bible is like a how-to on, on making or uh, on uh, capturing and, and enslaving people, they're just not being biblically honest. They're not doing the, the due diligence to read it in its totality and to see it as a whole. Okay, so that is the heart of God for us. He wants to liberate us. A couple things we got to look at when it comes to Jesus' liberating us. There's another passage where Jesus talks about setting people free. Very famous passage, very famous line comes from this passage. It's John chapter 8. He says in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's the famous line. Then he answered, then they answered him. Look at this in verse 33. We are Abraham's offspring, and we have, look at this, never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? You know, this is just laughable right off the bat. These are Jews talking to Jesus and claiming that they've never been enslaved. They were enslaved to Pharaoh for 400 years. Then they were free for a little while, and then God would hand them over to their enemies. Even in the monarchy under David, they were handed over to their enemies after, the, you know, after David, after Solomon, through the ages of the kings. And then they are enslaved to the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, the Persians. After the Persians, the Medes. After the Medes, the Greeks. And even when Jesus is saying this in John chapter 8, and they're claiming they've never been enslaved to anyone, they are now subjugated to the Roman Empire. It's not that they haven't been free at times. It's just that they've been more often enslaved to other people. And I thought about this text, and I think it's so illustrative of what we claim about ourselves. Here they are, perhaps the most enslaved people to the most diverse mention of nations in human history. And they're saying, we've never been enslaved to anybody. How hard it is. And this is true for some of you watching right now, especially unbelievers. It's hard for you to, to admit you're a slave. Nobody wants to admit that. We want to be free, freedom, freedom. But we are. We are enslaved to so many things in this world. No matter who you are, there's something that you're going to follow and submit to.
Back in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is the heart of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is he talking about there? He's talking about going back to the law as the standard of living which again, we are dealing with the law, the Torah. And Christians, the law, the Torah is not our standard. Our standard is higher. A lot of Christians don't get this. We don't go and defend the Torah and all, all, all the ancient practices there because that's not our standard. That was ancient Israel's standard. Paul will say it is a guardian until Christ comes. It is a shadow of the truth that is to come. In fact, um, the Bible says that the law is a shadow of the things to come. And we do not follow the Torah, but we examine the Torah because the Torah reveals the heart of God. Uh, so back to slaves to sin. There's so many passages about this. I could put it on the screen all day. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that were by nature not God or not God's. The psalmist prays in uh, Psalm 19, 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Those would be willful sins. And then look what he says here. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. In other words, do not fool yourself. You give yourself to sin. It becomes an enslaving aspect of your life. This is true for drugs. This is true for alcohol. This is true for pornography. This is true for popular opinion. A anything that you start to dabble with, that you know is, is ultimately bad for you. It's, it's, um, it's something that the devil has twisted and contorted to make attractive to you. And you start to dabble and you get into it and it just doesn't satisfy anymore. And you get more and you need more. The, the, drug, uh, the drug addict always needs a stronger drug. The porn addict always needs a more degradating scene. The approval addict always needs more people, more likes, more follows, more attention. The car addict, the possessions addict, gets as many toys as they possibly can. There's no end to the opportunity to be enslaved. And so all that to say this, we need freedom. God is the one who does it. Jesus came and lived perfectly for us so that we might be set free. And in him, hear this very clearly, we're not truly, truly free as if we are allowed to do what we want anymore. Now we are slaves to righteousness. And the transformation of our heart is no longer to obey sin and to walk in sin without regard for its consequences and without regard for what it does to our lives. No, now our hearts are drawn toward God. We want to follow the Lord. We want to please him. We may fail. And in our failures, we repent, we turn back, we confess, we seek help and healing and restoration. We hate it that we, that we disappointed God and we go back to him because deep down our hearts have been switched slaves to sin, from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. This is a great quote. He says, freedom isn't just unconstrained choices without boundaries, but rather finding the kinds of boundaries that liberate us to be fully alive. I've uh, shared this story, uh, this illustration before, I think, on the channel, or at least in my preaching at my church. It's a powerful illustration 
where they did a test of kids at a playground. And the playground toys were all like in the middle of this big wide open area and they had no fence. And they said, kids go play. And the kids went in and they played. And what they realized was the kids did not venture far from the toys. They all kind of gathered together in close knit, you know, proximity. Then they put the fence up. As soon as the boundary was there, the kids spread out and played with freedom. Why? The security, the mental security of the boundary created liberty within the boundary. That's the law. That's God's word. That's the Holy Spirit. He comes to create boundaries for us that we might live in the kinds of boundaries that liberate us to be truly free, to be truly alive. And ultimately, this leads to another aspect of our life in Christ, because some of you uh, need to get the language right when it comes to serving God. Uh, we are not servants. I'm sorry. We are not simply serving God. We are servants of God, or as it is on the screen. We are servants, not simply people who serve. Okay, there. Got it right. <laughs> we are servants. This is an important distinction, because to serve as, or to be a slave is not the same as being a servant, right? To, to serve someone is not the same as being a servant. If I, only, if I only serve, then I get to decide how and when and whether I'm gonna serve at all. It's a personal choice. But if I'm a servant, if I identify that way, personal choice is gone. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are servants of another. It's a noun, not a verb. The verb is the result of the noun, but is who we are. This is how God wants us to understand ourselves. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25, 55 illustrates this. He says, for it is to me the people of Israel are to be servants, are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or as uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, when he talks about that the Gentiles lorded over the, the lower members of society, and he says, it shall, not be among, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, noun. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, noun. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Interesting way in which Jesus Christ illustrates our discipleship. You're a slave now. You're a slave to righteousness. And righteousness serves your fellow man. Um, this is why the New Testament writers will refer to themselves as slaves. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. James, the Lord's brother, James chapter 1, verse 1, he calls himself a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understood that these, their reality had been totally altered from a slave to sin uh, to a slave to God. And there is no middle ground. Now, all that to bring us back to Torah, because ultimately this season is on the first five books of the Bible. And I want to give you all this context because you need to learn how to read Torah redemptively. So I've already said the, the law is a shadow of the things to come. Here's where that is in Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is, what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying the law and every instrument of the law, the feast days, the stipulations, the practices, that's a shadow. 
It, and, and when you think about a shadow, I wish I had a light, I should have brought a light. A shadow can only merely represent an object. It cannot fully illustrate the object. So too, the law, when it comes to slavery, is a shadow of a spiritual reality that we have to understand in Christ, what he has come to do. He has come to set the slaves free and make us slaves to God. Let me give you another illustration, shifting gears away from slavery for a moment, because there is a biblical precedent for what I'm teaching you now. Reading Torah redemptively. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. This is a very interesting passage. And it, by the way, I guarantee not anyone obeys this law, but here it is on the screen. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is trading out the grain. That's nobody's life verse. <laughs> no, nobody needs to practice or memorize that verse. It's, it's, it's irrelevant to you. It is a 3,500-year-old law. Okay, but it is now referenced regarding New Testament realities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about uh, the fact that he doesn't take money to preach the gospel. Other people do, and they have a right to. And he makes this big argument about how you need to pay people who provide you the spiritual truths from the scriptures. This is a good thing. The Levites ate from the offerings of the Israelites, and it supplied their needs. They didn't have land. They didn't farm. So they were supplied through the sacrifices. And he goes on this tangent. And at the end of first, well, in the middle of First Corinthians chapter 9, he says, these, he says this, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Okay, now look at what he's doing. He is making an argument for Christian living based on a law that seems to be in left field. Because here's the law he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. This is an agricultural principle that Paul has just lifted out of the pages of the Torah and now applied to the rationality behind uh, church people, uh, church members, paying their pastor. He says, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? <laughs> no, of course not. He, he's talking about us. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should hope, thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? This is, this is the foundation for paying a pastor. And Paul uses this seemingly irrelevant, really what it means to pay a worker, seemingly irrelevant law in Deuteronomy and brings it way over here to this context and says, this is how we should treat people who work and do the work of ministry in the word. And that is how we as Christians must read Torah redemptively. So we don't read it to say, okay, this is now how we are to act. And we don't go back to the feast days. And I get it. I know there are, there are Christians. You want to celebrate the Passover. You want to celebrate, you know, um, you want to have the Passover Seder and all this. Look, those are Jewish laws. You do not have to go back to them. And, and the Sabbath, even Colossians talks about this. You don't have to have a rule about the Sabbath. I am a, I'm, I'm in favor. But the principle is very clear. One day in seven, you don't work. But sometimes you just can't get Sunday off. You're free in Christ. You're not free to work seven days a week. No, you are free in Christ to move that Sabbath around to wherever it needs to be so that you can rest one day a week. You have to learn to read scripture redemptively or you will fall on your face in any pursuit of biblical interpretation. I hope I'm getting across to you. Let me know in the chat, is this helping you? Um, I hope it is. So let's go to 
interpreting now redemptively these slave laws that we've talked about for the last two episodes. The slave laws in Torah are self-surrendered. Slavery in Torah is, is self-surrendered to someone else for one's own protection and benefit. Even in the case of the foreigners who were enslaved for life, they were selling themselves to the Israelites, Leviticus 25, uh, willfully because they wanted protection, they wanted to have a, some kind of means to live and all that kind of thing, and they needed to earn a living. Now, here's the reality, though. There is a difference between how the Israelites were supposed to enslave their own Hebrews and how they were to enslave foreigners. And this is kind of how we're, we're going to go here. And some of you unbelievers, you won't like it, but you have to understand that in the covenant community, there is a different standard. So the standard in the covenant community is Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, but Exodus 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go free uh, for nothing. Now, Deuteronomy, go over to Deuteronomy and you will see that not only does he go free, but you liberally supply him with everything that he needs. And why are they to do that? Because they are to act as God acted toward them. When they came out of Egypt in slavery to Egypt, God liberally supplied through the Egyptians all of their material benefits. And now the Hebrews are to act like God. You you you, you uh, purchase a fellow Hebrew, six years is the limit, and you let them go. By the way, Jeremiah 28, or 34, I think it's Jeremiah 28 though. He reprimands, God excoriates his people because they did not practice this law. Somebody uh, chatted on the deep dive from a couple episodes ago. They said, yeah, but the Israelites never uh, practiced the year of Jubilee. You're right. They never did. And Jeremiah tells them, that's why you're going into slavery yourself. Because you did not live free and practice freedom for your fellow people. You and the land, you are now going to be enslaved to pay for it. Just because they didn't practice the year of Jubilee does not annul the law of the year of Jubilee. Another passage about covenant community slavery, Leviticus 25, 39 to 40. If your brother, that's a Hebrew, becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall make him, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Okay, so that's the covenant community law regarding slavery. Now, outside of the covenant community, the law is different. Leviticus chapter 25, 45. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and your clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but not over your brothers. The people of Israel, you shall not rule one over one another ruthlessly. Now I know I'm repeating this passage and I know we talked about it in the last episode, but listen, these are shadows. That's the point I'm trying to make. And remember, we talked about the fact that that was protection for the land to be in ownership of the Hebrews in perpetuity. That was last episode, but let me show you from the redemptive reading of, of the Torah how you're supposed to read this text. There was to be, in the covenant community, a consistent spirit of release. The Jews were to get into the habit of setting people free. If you think about it, they didn't all become, they didn't all sell themselves to their fellow Hebrews at the same time. One would sell themselves in this year, and then the following year, someone else would sell. So, you know, these six-year contracts would end, you know, at, at different points in their time frame, in their, in their calendar. And so what you would see in the community of Israel was a regulative principle of setting people free, of letting slaves go, and abundantly providing for them so that they can make it on their own. But 
in the case of other people outside of the government community, they would never truly experience ultimate freedom. And this is hard for unbelievers to, to accept because there were different standards. In the covenant community, freedom, 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 limited slave terms, all year of Julie. In the not, when it's non-covenant community member, slave for life. It's a shadow. It's a shadow of the reality of the spiritual condition that we just spent the first half of this episode talking about. Only in covenant with Christ Jesus do we experience freedom. Let me put it like this on the screen. Only in the freedom God gives people can people ever truly experience freedom. And if that bothers you, it's because you're not a member of the community of faith. And I understand it. You're allowed to be bothered. You're allowed to be offended. No, <laughs> no issue with you being offended. But what, you, what really should bother you, unbeliever, is the fact that you will experience something far worse than slavery in the life to come if you continue in disbelief, unbelief, and rebellion against God. That should bother you far more than what the Bible says about slavery. Because I am not teaching you, I'm not here trying to be the defense attorney for 3,500-year-old laws. I am here to tell you about Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of Torah, and how he is the reality of the shadows of these Old Testament principles. Now, someone will say, well, what about the New Testament commands about bond servants? There's Ephesians chapter 6, bond servants, obey, the, the word doulos in, in, in Greek, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and not only when they're looking at you, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Sir, be a good slave is basically what he is saying. And in Colossians 3, bond servants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Yes, 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 you're right, they're there, absolutely. Even in the New Testament, you don't see Paul saying, hey, uh, bond servants, get free. No, because again, it was the it was the economic policy by which you supply your needs if you were not a landowner, if you did not have the means to supply your needs on your own. But here's how you need to read these passages a little bit clearer. This is a letter, and it's addressed to bond slaves. This passage, at least, is addressed to bond slaves. What does that tell you? It's telling you that Paul expected that the slaves would be within earshot of this letter written to the church, which also talked about their masters. So the slaves would hear what their job was, but they would also listen as their masters heard what their job was. Ephesians chapter 6, 9, masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, there it is, there is no such thing as a free man, uh, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians 4, 1, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So I, I illustrate it like this. When you're in a church service with your wife and the pastor speaks about what wives need to do for their husbands, it's so great to be there with an earshot, isn't it not? Is it not? And, and then wives, you get the same thrill when you're with your husband in church and the pastor talks about what husbands need to do in their marriage. It's like, yes, thank you. They're hearing it from outside of me. Amen. But that's the effect that Paul has here in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 and 4. He's basically letting both members of this relationship structure hear what their responsibilities are to each other. And this is unheard of. I, I could show you evidence. There is no evidence, uh, documented at least, that uh, slaves were ever addressed in a letter by anyone. Or 
uh, at least in a letter that addressed their masters as well. This is groundbreaking stuff, friend. And it is only found in the New Testament. Uh, let's see if I have time to go over this. When it comes to Roman slavery, you know what? Let me just give you this. I'm going to put it on the screen quickly. This is from the Dictionary of Later New Testament De and, uh, and its Developments uh, from the IVP Dictionary. Ten facts about Greek and Roman slavery that have no bearing on New World slavery. Number one, slaves were not identified by appearance or clothing, so it was not chattel slavery based on the color of one's skin. Number two, slaves shared cultural and religious traditions with their owners. They worshiped the same God. They worshiped, they celebrated the same festivals. Uh, number three, education was encouraged for slaves. You were encouraged to become an educated slave. It helped your master. Number four, uh, they functioned in high positions in the household. They were managers, they were accountants, tutors. In fact, Paul refers to one of them uh, who, Susa, who is the wife of Herod's house, uh, house manager. I, I think that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The Number five, the bottom of society were not slaves. They were free persons who had to find work every day with no certainty of employment. So you, you have to realize that, again, slavery was an economic policy by which men provided for their needs. Number six, slaves owned property. That might be shocking. Including other slaves. They could accumulate funds to secure their freedom. Number seven, no laws prohibited the public assembly of slaves from all classes. They could gather as slaves. They could gather with other classes of people. Number eight, slaves had familiarity, uh, fa families of their own, and were not considered part of the owner's family. And uh, number nine, slaves often sold themselves willingly to climb socially or obtain special government positions. And number 10, the majority of slaves were set free at the age of 30, and upon their freedom or manumation, they were made citizens of Rome. Those are the facts about new um, first century slavery. And again, please show me the correlation between new world slavery and first century slavery. And I would ask you this, which society had a better foundation? Exodus 21, which prohibits stealing a man and selling him, and 1 Timothy 1, which castigates slave traders, or and that, that those are first century and ancient world slavery laws on the books in the Bible. Or take, for instance, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 in this country. That if you didn't return a fugitive slave, you were liable. It also made the federal government responsible for finding, returning, and, and trying escaped slaves. This is on my heart because we have to understand God's heart is to set people free. My, th my final thought, my final passage uh, before we conclude. I call it the Bible's Emancipation Proclamation. It is a very short, run-by sentence in Paul's writings, but you could make a case that it is the foundation for the abolition movement and for the eradication of the uh, institution of slavery as a whole in our world today. And it comes from a very short book. It's a postcard epistle written by Paul to one man named Philemon. Philemon was a um, friend of Paul, probably a convert under Paul's ministry at the church in Laodicea, uh, no, sorry, Colossae. And he had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away, uh, as slaves often did in the ancient world. And when he ran away, he came and he found Paul in a Roman prison, and he started to talk to Paul because he knew Paul from when he was ministering to Philemon in Colossae. And uh, he served Paul, and he started to help Paul with his ministry and spread Paul's messages and letters. And, you know, he wasn't in jail. Paul was. And so then Paul says, uh, shares the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul makes a decision to send Onesimus back 
to his former slave master Philemon, to his friend, Paul's friend. And he sends him with this letter, it's called Philemon, and it is his emancipation problem, his, his emancipation papers. Because here's how he tells Philemon, the former slave master, to welcome back now his brother in Christ and runaway slave. It's a powerful passage, Philemon 15 to 19. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then listen to this. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. There are so many things that Paul is saying in this passage. Number one, he's saying, he's not coming to you back as, he's not coming back to you as a bondservant. He's coming back to you as a brother in Christ. And then I want you to treat him like you would treat me, the guy who led you to Christ. And then verse 18, it gets even better. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing, owing me even your very own self. And what you see here is Paul doing exactly what redemptive um, reading of the Torah is all about. God is a liberator. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. And those who follow him and believe in him should practice the art of setting slaves free, setting servants free, and establishing community in the covenant of Christ, whereby we no longer regard each other based on the color of our skin or our socioeconomic status or where we grew up or where we come from or our national tongue or whatever other divisive ideologies of our age. We should now regard each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, family in God's house. That is what we're supposed to do with the Bible when it comes to slavery. And again, if you're not a Christian, I get it. You're not going to like this. You're not going to understand it. Totally get it. But I'm trying to share with you the beauty of reading God's word, even the Torah, redemptively through the lens of the gospel. So concluding facts, let's put them up on the screen all at once. God is a liberator. The great slavery enslaver is sin, sin enslaves. From creation to our relations, it enslaves. Uh, through the redemptive work of God, slavery is curtailed and eventually abolished. And then ultimately only in Christ, through his redemptive community, do we tr truly experience freedom. And that's the episode. And I'm so glad that you were here. And if you would do me a favor, support the Bible study. Old school, cash app, Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com slash support. But we also have membership plans for the Tim Hatch Live community. When you support us, we support Project Rescue and the American Bible Society and like, share, and subscribe. Glad to be with you guys. Glad I can bring this content to you. I appreciate the time that we have together. May God bless you and strengthen you. And may you be in the business of setting captives free. Some of you, you need to forgive somebody. You need to let someone off the hook. You need to stop worrying about the money they owe you. Set them free, let it go. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Jesus' name, we will show the world that we believe and live like it's true.